Hey there, Rounds Tables listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. We have a great replay episode for you here, and tune in next week to find out what's new in the exciting world of medical research. This week, deadly opioids for non-cancer pain, and new antiplatelets for stroke or TIA? Get out of here. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine, hosted online at Healthy Debate. My name is Kieran Quinn. Wait, what did you say? Kieran Quinn? Not Amol Verma? Where's Amol? Hasn't he been the host for the past two years? That's right, ball fans. I am your new host of The Rounds Table. Amol has kindly handed over the reins, and I am going to be leading you through the next year in major new medical research here at the Rounds Table podcast. I am also a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto, but I am not a mole. So hopefully you'll find me as charming and witty as he once was. Speak of the devil, a mole is sitting right here next to me. Hi, mole. Welcome to your show and now my show. <laughs> Hi, Karen. Uh, before you had that last line about how Amol used to be charming. I thought you were just buttering me up, but now it's clear that you're taking this opportunity to uh, paint me as a has-been, and and I'm just on my way out. It's been an amazing project for me and for our whole team to work on over the last couple of years. I want to say thanks to everyone at Healthy Debate and also to all my co-hosts, especially Fahad Razak and uh, Travis Murdoch, who were the founding co-hosts of the Rounds Table um, it's really been a great project, and I'm really excited to see what you and your whole new team uh, do with this going forward. End dictation. Uh, but in all seriousness, Samo, uh, we do really appreciate uh, all of the hard work that you've done, and clearly you've created a fantastic podcast that's followed by thousands and thousands of individuals, uh, and I can only express my greatest gratitude for uh, passing on these uh, important responsibilities to me. So hopefully I can live up to your great efforts uh, to this date. <laughs> okay, I think that's probably enough self-congratulations All right. for this episode. Let me make a plug before we jump in. Exactly, okay? yep. So we're trying to understand why people listen to medical podcasts. So listener who's hearing this right now, I'm talking about you. Why do you listen to this podcast? Podcasts are really becoming very prevalent in medical education. And we don't really understand why people listen to them or how they listen to podcasts, what they take away from it. And so what we're hoping to do is conduct interviews. We've already conducted a handful of interviews with people uh, who have been listening to the podcast. We really would like to interview some people who we don't know. So if you don't know me personally and you listen to this podcast and would be willing to speak with one of our students about why you listen to the podcast for a very brief interview, about 20 minutes to 30 minutes. We would really appreciate it. Uh, just get in touch with me. You can email me at amol.a.verma at gmail.com or tweet at me at amolaverma. That's A-M-O-L-A-V-E-R-M-A. All right, that's the end of my plug. Excellent. Really important uh, work that you're doing there and, uh, and helps us to understand why this podcast has become so popular. Yeah, and hopefully make it better for people too. So let's get into the articles this week. We're talking about two articles, one uh, about opioid use uh, and risk of death. We'll get into that uh, later. But first, let's talk about uh, ticagrelor versus aspirin in stroke or TIA. Uh, Amola, what got you interested in this topic? Well, so this is a real 
common problem that we face in uh, medicine, in hospital medicine especially. Obviously stroke and uh, TIA are very common presentations. And it's a real question that we face every day, which is how to best treat patients who have stroke and try to prevent them from having recurrent strokes. And so we put people on a variety of medications, including lipid lowering therapy, etc. But one of the big questions that we always ask ourselves is, what antiplatelet agent should I put this person on? Should they be on aspirin or should they be on one of the newer agents? So an important problem, that being stroke or TIA, uh, and to answer an important question, is newer always better? Uh, and we'll get into that uh, in just a minute. So uh, Amol, tell me in a sort of one to two sentence summary, what do you think the, the bottom line, the crux of the, the takeaway from this article is for our listeners who may not want to listen longer after this? <laughs> yeah, so this was called Socrates. It was a large, high quality, randomized control trial of about 13,000 patients who had an acute ischemic stroke who did not receive thrombolytic therapy. And what it showed was that tecagrelor was not superior to aspirin in reducing stro recurrent stroke within 90 days. So let's get into um, how these uh, authors go about answering that question. And, uh, and you know, I, I wanted to sort of talk about the methods. Methods can be a bit like watching paint dry sometimes um, for those not interested in statistical uh, analysis. But just tell us sort of what they did, what the intervention was, and then we'll get into the strengths and weaknesses of the, of the methodology afterwards. People were included in the study and enrolled within 24 hours of their symptom onset, and they were randomized to either ticagrelor or aspirin. And both, they received a loading dose up front, so 180 milligrams of the ticagrelor or 300 milligrams of aspirin loading dose, which I have to say is kind of interesting because in my day-to-day -day practice, I don't use a loading dose of aspirin, certainly not 300 milligrams. Sometimes you give people two baby aspirins mm -hmm. to chew and it would be you know about 160 milligrams and that's in the uh, cardiac event episode right. but not so much in stroke not so much right? in stroke yeah so that's kind of an interesting thing so a loading dose of either the tecagrelor or aspirin and then they were uh, continued on a maintenance daily dose so that was the study and the primary endpoint was uh, time from randomization to the first occurrence of any event um, from the composite of uh, stroke myocardial infarction or death. So let's talk about the strengths of the methodology first. Yeah, so this was a large study. I think I mentioned there were over 13,000 patients. It was an international multi-center study. So that right off the bat is a big strength. Um, it was high quality. So it was a randomized study. It was double blinded. They conducted an analysis using an intention to treat approach. So they basically did all of the things that you're supposed to do when you're conducting a randomized trial to try to reduce the risk of bias. They also had really excellent follow-up. So they report a rate of about 98.5% follow-up. So really phenomenal uh, diligence with conducting this study. So I think those are probably the main strengths of the methodology. And then, as you mentioned before, you know, it's an important disease and an important question. Any concerns you had about the methodology of, uh, of this study? So there's a couple of important points to make about how we interpret the study, more so that there are limits to generalizing these findings to other patients. Um, so the, the most important one, I think I mentioned right up front, which is that these patients did not receive thrombolytic therapy or any of the new interventions for stroke. So these are patients who had what we would call colloquially as non-TPA stroke. 
Um, so that's an important limit to generalization. Also, they excluded patients who um, they thought might have a cardioembolic source of stroke. So people with atrial fibrillation or some other thing that they thought might have caused cardioembolic stroke. Furthermore, they limited enrollment of people who were at really high risk of stroke. So people who had high-grade carotid or severe intracranial stenosis. It's not that those people were specifically excluded, but just not many of them ended up being enrolled in the study. And then the last point I'll make is that they looked at short-term outcomes. So they looked at a 90-day stroke recurrence rate, right? which you know, uh, speaks to why they were able to have such good follow-up, uh, but also may limit our ability to understand what the true long-term outcomes are. Right. And I, and I understand that you know, your risk of stroke uh, is sort of highest in the first 90 days and probably even higher in the first sort of two weeks. Or even the first two days. Yeah. Uh, or even the first two days. Good point. Um, so I guess maybe from a practical design standpoint, that's why they chose such a short follow-up in the, yeah, the long-term. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, I think we had a good understanding uh, sort of what they did and how they did it. Um, so let's find out what happened uh, with the results of the study. Okay, yeah, so what they found was, as I mentioned before, there's no real difference. Uh, the composite endpoint occurred about 6.7% of the time in the Ticagrelor group and 7.5% in the aspirin group. So actually there was a slight di difference in the sense that Ticagrelor group had an, a smaller absolute rate of the composite primary endpoint, but this difference was not statistically significant. The p-value was 0 0.07. So uh, they just, just missed hitting that magic out. number. That's right. Um, and, you know, they had enough events, according to their power calculations, to say whether or not, you know, this would be statistically significant. So it was a well, it was well powered for uh, what they found, and they uh, did not find a significant difference. There were some interesting secondary outcomes. Probably the most important one is uh, that... Ticagrelor was stopped more frequently than aspirin, about 6% instead of 1% of the time. And the most common reason for stopping Ticagrelor was a sensation of shortness of breath. Yeah, what's up an, with that? that? I have was, no idea. I mean, I've read it's a common side effect. I've actually seen a couple of patients with it, but I guess we don't know much as to why that happens, eh? Well, we as in you and I don't know much True. about how that happens. <laughs> and probably someone out there does. Someone far smarter than us probably knows the answer to that. <laughs> if you know, listener, please tweet at Kieran and tell him this is why we're this so ignorant. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else of interest you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so I want to talk about one other really important subgroup and the question that plagues us all the time. So, Kieran, what do you do if someone is already on aspirin and they come to hospital and they have a stroke on aspirin? Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, I mean, the first question that goes through my mind is, is this a failure of aspirin therapy? Uh, and really, to me, it comes down to um, the risk of putting him on two uh, different antiplatelet agents, so potentially continuing his aspirin and adding something like Ticagrelor or Plavix, uh, switching to uh, from the aspirin to Ticagrelor or Plavix, um, uh, or trying to look for another cause for his stroke that may not be reduced in risk if it was just due to an antiplatelet agent, i.e., you know, is this an embolic uh, stroke from uh, atrial fibrillation? 
despite his other risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Yeah, and the, I think the important point there is that we don't have a lot of science to help guide that decision, which is why, as you said, there's a pretty diverse range of options that you might take as a clinician. Fortunately, this study helps us answer that question. So 32% of the people enrolled in this study were taking aspirin before randomization, and then those people would have been randomized to either switch to ticagrelor or continue the aspirin after having had a stroke. And what we found with a subgroup analysis uh, was that there was no significant interaction between whether people were on aspirin or not beforehand and whether they had a lower rate of uh, the composite primary outcome. So basically, there was no benefit of switching from aspirin to ticagrelor. Right. So this helps us tell us that actually we should not be switching these people to a more expensive, possibly more difficult to tolerate medication because there's no real benefit to them. Now, what they're... Uh, might be is we still don't know whether there's a benefit to the dual therapy, right. and that's that's an outstanding question. Uh, but certainly we don't seem to have found a benefit from the uh, switch to the newer medication. So that's really helpful, actually, for clinical practice. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for that, Amo. So let's talk uh, about sort of the interpretation of this study and how it's going to apply to the patients that we all see with these types of situations. So. Uh, you're in the emergency room and, and you get called to, for a possible you know, high-risk TIA or stroke. Who does this study really apply to? How can you take this evidence and use it for the patients that you're going to make treatment decisions around? The major learning point here is that the new antiplatelet agent, specifically ticagrelor, is not better than aspirin, even in people who were previously on aspirin. And that ticagrelor is discontinued more frequently, primarily because of shortness of breath and that there are just a few limits to generalizing this study specifically for people who have very significant carotid or intracranial disease. There weren't a lot of those people represented in this study. And people who had a cardioembolic stroke or received TB. So does this change the way that you currently practice uh, in treating these types of individuals? You know what it does for two reasons. So one, I practice with more confidence at just giving them an aspirin. But the second thing is now I'm not going to be so concerned when I see someone who has a stroke who was previously on aspirin about switching them to a new medication. I think that's actually a, a change in my practice. Thanks, Amal. Anything else you wanted to add? No. Um, I'm glad to go out on such a blockbuster trial. I think this is one that's going to uh, show up in a lot of journal clubs and things around town. So. I'll uh, be curious to hear what those of our listeners you know, think about this, especially those of you who look after patients with stroke. Yeah, excellent. So if you had any comments, listeners, that you wanted to make, uh, there'll be the uh, ways to contact us at the end. But just remember that we're on uh, Twitter, on Facebook, uh, and at healthydebate.ca, where the blog is hosted. So there's multiple ways to get in touch with us. Uh, listen at the end for the specific addresses. Okay, moving on to the next article. So Amol, I decided to tackle uh, an article that was published recently in JAMA entitled Prescription of Long-Acting Opioids and Mortality in Patients with no Chronic Non-Cancer Pain. Uh, and I was really interested in this article. It's sort of developed over the last couple of years. The Institute of Medicine in the United States has released uh, a comprehensive set of opioid prescribing guidelines. Um, and in Ontario, uh, locally for us, the Ontario government has just officially uh, put notice as of January 2017, they will no longer pay on the Ontario drug formulary uh, for high-dose opioid medications. Um, and this is all driven by 
the lack of evidence or efficacy uh, of opioids, especially in high doses um, for chronic pain, um, and the multitude of complications that can come from these medications. So this uh, article caught my eye and I wanted to look uh, at what the evidence around its use in non-cancer pain was and what sort of risks from a safety standpoint that we had. Okay, so tell me what is the bottom line for this article. Uh, if I'm seeing a patient who has non-malignant chronic pain, uh, that is pain that is not related to cancer, they're at approximately a one and a half to two-fold increased risk of all-cause death uh, in the first 180 days of starting a long-acting opioid therapy. So that's a very impressive finding. What was the magnitude of the risk of death? Right. There's many ways you can sort of present this, uh, these findings. Um, so perhaps the easiest way to understand it would be that if you uh, followed a thousand people for one year, um, about just under seven of those individuals would die as a consequence of being prescribed long-acting uh, opioid therapies. That's a pretty huge risk, actually. Let's dig into this a little bit more. So uh, tell me a little bit about the methods and what you think were the strengths of the methods for this paper. Okay, so first, uh, overall, what they did, they, they, they took a retrospective look uh, using the Tennessee Medicaid database um, for patients who are under the Medicaid insurance plan in the U.S. Um, and this is from the years 1999 to 2012. Um, and in that time frame, they looked at patients who did not have a d uh, diagnosis of cancer and were um, under the age of 75. Um, and then there was a few other important exclusions about nursing homes uh, and other life-threatening disease or, the, or palliative care uh, as an important sort of way to, to corral their patient population. And they asked the question, what is the risk of death um, uh, in patients who are prescribed long-acting uh, opioids for the very first uh, prescription uh, versus uh, those who did not receive those uh, medications but as an appropriate control where had chronic pain and therefore received some other type of uh, long, you know, analgesic medications like tricyclic antidepressants and others that we use to treat uh, chronic pain in these, in these individuals. Okay, so you raise, I think, a couple of really interesting points. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you thought were the strengths of this study? Yeah, so one of the strengths of these types of retrospective uh, administrative data studies uh, is that you can include a lot of patients uh, because they're already in the system and, and all of their information is available. Uh, and this, uh, this study enrolled uh, or, you know, in the end had a 23,000 uh, patient data set. Um, and they used a very complicated uh, matching process called propensity score matching to ensure that uh, any type of additional biases that can be introduced into these types of retro retrospective uh, studies were accounted for or removed, um, which sort of enhances your ability to trust the, um, the results. Uh, when it's done in a, in a limited way by doing it retrospectively versus following patients forward in time. Um, so I think that's really the crux of why this is a good, a good study. Okay, so the major strengths are size and the fact that they used propensity scores to match. Um, tell, and, and that they used interesting comparisons, right? So they, the, the exposure was opioids and the comparison group was other types of analgesics. So either uh, anticonvulsant or antidepressant type analgesic medication, right? right? So um, 
tell me about what you think are some of the limitations or weaknesses of this approach. So I think in any study that requires some form of fancy statistical methodology to match their patients, you have to remember at the very base of it, at the core of it, the patients are not the same in each group. And we can, you know, apply all sorts of fancy methodologies to try to make them more similar, and, and that's the best that we can do with this kind of data. Uh, but just remember at the bottom line that they're not the same patients to begin with, and there might be factors that we're not accounting for, uh, you know, what we call residual bias, uh, that are still present that could make one uh, patient population more likely to experience the outcome, death in this case, versus the others. Any other limitations? They, they did look at patients who, and excluded them if they had a recorded history of drug abuse, but there are lots of people who are walking around you know, on these medications who don't have a recorded uh, history of drug abuse or alcohol abuse. So, you know, th these but are... But who might actually be abusers or addi addicted to, to those medications. Exactly, like yeah. The quality of the data is probably not good around those. Exactly, right. And, you know, we know that opioids are a, a, a neurological depressant type medication and alcohol and other recreational drugs can also have the same type of effect. So the interaction between those two might increase your risk of death in those individuals. Um, so that's not captured by this data set um, and, you know, as a source of potential, what, as I said, was called residual bias in this situation. So the other point, I guess, to raise is that you mentioned this is Medicaid data and Medicaid patients are not the same as the general patient population. My understanding is that Medicaid is for uh, people who are low income predominantly. I think there are some other smaller groups of people maybe with disability or different groups that end up in Medicaid, but primarily it's for low income individuals, right? That's my understanding. Uh, I'm not a, uh, an expert when it comes to the U.S. Um, medical plans for insurance, but the basic understanding I have of Medicaid is that's exactly right. Yeah, and so um, obviously the, the risks in that patient group might be a little different than in the general population, and I would estimate probably a little bit overestimated in that group. Like those people might be a little bit more vulnerable, but uh, nevertheless, it's an important uh, a question and an important there's you know certainly enough Medicaid patients to make that population important to study in themselves. Yeah, and I think that's right. Um, and I think sort of the last thing I wanted to, to mention as well was that you know while this study was really wanted to look at death as a significant outcome, um, they didn't look at other morbidity sort of complications that are commonly caused by opioid therapy uh, versus the non-opioid therapies. Um, so that would have just added to the strength of understanding just how dangerous these medications can be in these populations. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, the, the results speak for themselves uh, enough already to know that, that this is a dangerous drug. Okay, so you told me before the main finding of this study is there that there is an increased risk of death in people who are receiving long-acting opioid medication. Um, where it gets interesting is, uh, and what I think is one of the strengths of the subtleties of this uh, study was they really wanted to know where are those deaths happening and they really wanted to actually find out are these happening in hospital or out of hospital um, and they found that in that case uh, there was a significant proportion of those were out of hospital deaths and the hazard ratio was 1.72 in that setting for an out of hospital death due to long-acting uh, opioids. And a surprising study for me, which took me a little while to wrap my head around, uh, is that the cause of, uh, of those deaths 
were not all unintentional overdoses, as many people might expect, but a significant proportion were actually due to cardiovascular death. Um, and there's a lot of speculation in the article about why that may be. Uh, it's still not entirely clear to me the biological mechanism, um, and this study doesn't really try to get at that. Is cardiovascular death a consequence of the unintentional overdose? N uh, no, not directly, at least according to the author's interpretation. Uh, what they speculate is that um, the effects, the, the sort of respiratory and neurologic depression effects of opioid therapy may increase or, or exacerbate underlying cardiovascular disorders. Uh, so for example, obstructive sleep apnea, you know, when somebody goes out and has too much to drink one night, they often are known to snore a lot more that night. It's the same kind of physiological mechanism that if they had significant amounts of opioids, um, uh, that they would increase uh, their, you know, potentially their obstructive sleep apnea, which would put increased stress on the cardiovascular system and may cause arrhythmias that cause death or heart attack that causes death uh, for these individuals. Um, this is a bit of hand-waving that's, that's going on uh, from all parties, but I think it's a plausible uh, biological explanation from the data that we know currently. Yeah, that certainly seems plausible, and it's, it's very interesting for sure. So tell me, who does this study apply to? We talked a little bit about Medicaid patients. So what did the patients in this study look like? A 45-year-old woman who had chronic back pain was on multiple different analgesic and psychotropic medications. Um, that you were considering initiating long-acting opioid therapy for, um, and I would caution you against it. Well, that brings us to the perfect next question, which is, what are your main learning points from this article, and uh, how does this affect your practice? So um, the, main, the main points that I think, or I hope people can take away, is that long-acting opioid therapy, at any dose, in fact, um, is poses a major risk of death to patients, especially in the first 180 days. Well, since you raised it, does, was there a dose-response re effect, and did they report on any difference with the dosing? So they looked at patients who were on 60 milligrams or less, or 60 milligrams or more of morphine. Um, there didn't appear to be a dose response, as a, you know, those with higher than 60 milligrams were at a significantly increased risk of death versus those who were on less than 60, but any prescription no matter the dose, Ray elevated an individual's risk of death overall compared to those who are not on those medications. Okay. So I think that that's an important point to take is that um, you know, these medications as a class uh, can be dangerous when used uh, uh, in a long-acting form in patients who don't have cancer. Um, and if you felt like you needed to use them, then close monitoring in the first 180 days uh, might be more appropriate since that's when they appear to have their highest risk of death. Okay, and so does this change your practice? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I will definitely think much harder and longer than I already do uh, about writing a prescription for a long-acting opioid. I will feel more confident in counseling my patients about the risks of these medications and you know the risk is death. It's like the, the most feared complication of anything that we might do in medicine. Um, and I will try to, to um, help them deal with their pain and many non-pharmacologic and other pharmacologic methods that are not opioid related. Okay, perfect. Thanks, Kieran. Great, uh, great article. Um, okay, now for um, one of my favorites, and I know one of Amol's favorites uh, part of the show, the Good Stuff segment. Uh, Amol, what's catching your eye in um, news this week? 
Well, Kieran, what caught my eye was an article in uh, The Atlantic about how hospitals are partnering, partnering with Uber to get patients to their checkups. Patients are less likely to attend follow-up with physicians or other care providers if they don't have access to transportation. I suppose that's not surprising. And so there are some different healthcare provider networks in the US that are partnering with Uber and Lyft and other rideshare services to try to make it easier for patients to get to their appointments. And specifically, there are a couple of interesting things about this. So one is that for some Medicaid patients, actually, the cost of transportation is covered to a certain extent. And so the cost savings with rideshare versus other services might actually be important for making uh, the transportation like much more affordable or completely free even for some Medicaid patients. So that's one interesting uh, thing. And the other thing that's kind of interesting is they're working with Uber to actually integrate a reminder service into the app so that it reminds you when you have an appointment. And so, you know, there's this is obviously the beginning of, I think, what we're seeing, a lot of unlocking of, of these uh, sharing economy type apps and their ability in the healthcare space to, to help improve health. Um, but I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, that definitely sounds interesting. I, I wonder um, if it's a Medicaid population who is generally more financially challenged um, and the reliance on cell phones, if uh, if that might be at all a limiting factor to some of these individuals who may not have iPhones or other, you know, smartphones. Yeah. Uh, but definitely a very important step in the right direction and an interesting way to use technology and apply it to medicine. Cool. So my uh, uh, good stuff segment this week uh, was I came across a story that NPR reported on that was a story a book called The Square Meal, in fact, but it talked about how the Great Depression uh, in the 30s uh, changed the way that uh, the United States uh, cooked their meals, and particularly what kind of meals that they ate. Um, and it was sort of a bland, pun intended, um, uh, reflection on the blandness that the Great Depression brought in, uh, in that it was effectively uh, canned everything uh, topped in white sauce, baked in an oven. Yeah, that's so fascinating, Kieran. I mean, I think we think of uh, food as sort of innate to a culture, and I don't really think about sort of how uh, events might affect food and how that might then play into both health, nutrition, and also sort of cultural conceptions of food. It's making me sort of re-examine all sorts of my preconceived notions about cultural uh, different types of you know foods and and how that might be affected. So that's yeah. that's really cool. And speaking of culture, the the one of the authors actually sort of retrospectively criticized the U.S. government uh, in its approach uh, because uh, within their own country they had many uh, immigrant populations at the time. Italians were a big a big immigrant population in the 30s um, who were very good at making actually very delicious and flavorful food, um, uh, but for a variety of cultural um, uh, reasons that uh, they did, you know, decided not to ex uh, exploit or sort of use these uh, uh, immigrant populations uh, experience and just sort of came up with their own. Uh, and it's a bit fascinating about why that, uh, that occurred as well. So the book is called The Square Meal and uh, we'll put the link on NPR, the link to NPR on the website along with uh, the link to your uh, Uber in medicine 
uh, article on the on the podcast. Thank you for that. Awesome, great. Thanks, thanks uh, for having me on your show, Karen. <laughs> uh, I hope you can come back sometime soon. Well, Roundtable is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca/theroundtable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week. 